Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Labor Know Your Rights podcast, brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. They can be found at www.nljsp.us. The first myth we're going to cover today is if unions are so good, why aren't they growing? It is important to reiterate that one must recognize the impact of employer power, both the direct impact but also the indirect impact as the level of perception. The employer's ability to terminate a worker for organizing a union or organizing anything as a matter of fact has a chilling effect on the on worker morale. The fact that someone has the right to organize means little if in reality it takes months, if not years, to reinstate them from an illegal termination, assuming, of course, they win the case. A second factor that affects the ability of unions to grow is the response of employers when the union wins an election. I've had variances with this and can attest that it can turn ugly. If it wishes to keep resisting the fact that the workers chose a union or formed a union, the employer can engage in delaying tactics to put off bargaining. Employers know that there is a one-year period to negotiate a first contract, collective bargaining agreement, at which time there can be what is called a decertification election where the workers can vote to dump the union. Therefore, if an employer can utilize delaying tactics and make the entire process seem worthless, they attempt to undermine morale and lead the workers to throw up their hands in despair. The employer has the upper hand in two significant ways. First, they can actively oppose unionism through methods such as captive audience meetings, threat to move the facility, implied threats, disciplinary actions, terminations. While these may be illegal, the employer counts on the fact that it'll take years for a worker to fight such a case and that the worker will probably give up. Second, when the union attempts to engage in negotiations, the employer can drag them out. Keep in mind that the employer doesn't have to agree to anything. It simply has to bargain in good faith, which puts shackles on unions. There are insufficient penalties for employer interference in what should be a worker's right to choose representation. Employers can blatantly break the law only to be told that they have post a notice saying that they'll never break the law again. One direct reason for decline of unions has been the loss of membership, but this must be understood with discernment. The absolute number of union members hit a high of about 20 million in 1980, but as a percentage of the workforce, it was roughly 23%, a 9% decline from 32.5% density in 1953. In either case, within three years of 1980, roughly 3 million workers were no longer union members. The job loss occurred during the infamous recession of the first years of the Reagan administration. It was a time of shaking out, so to speak, and rampant deindustrialization. It was also a key moment during which workers were expected by businesses to accept players' concessions, demands to keep their facilities operating. The job loss was overwhelming in manufacturing, as I'll discuss later. 
The larger problem was that the unions weren't keeping pace with the growth of the workforce. That said, this dramatic loss of workers had a devastating impact on the landscape of the union movement. Keeping pace. What's fascinating about the growth challenge for unions is that they continued to grow until 1980. At the same time, as a percentage of the workforce, unions declined, so they weren't keeping pace with the growth of the workforce. The question then is why not? The loss of the left wing of labor. At different points, I've raised my criticism and concerns regarding the purges of the late 1940s that led to the loss of much of the left wing of organized labor. While many of the expelled unions from the CIO continue to exist, they declined in strength and were often raided by other CIO unions. In many respects, the more radical unions of the CIO represented the soul of the new 1930s union movement. They tended to be innovative and reached out to sectors of the workforce previously ignored. It's significant, then, to contrast the approach of the CIO who took towards attempting to organize the American South, 1946 to 1951, with what they did only a few years earlier when they first emerged. After World War II, when the CIO announced Operation Dixie, they went out of their way to exclude the political left. What's more... They chose to ignore the developing black freedom movement. The CIO treated its organizing of the South, and initially this was of the textile industry, as something that could be done in isolation from the major issues facing the South. Therefore, rather than the CIO unions and later the AFL-CIO unions being integral to the struggle for black freedom, they were often marginal. In some cases, some unions were actually opponents complacency. It was also true that in the North, Midwest, and the West Coast, there were no significant efforts to annihilate organized labor. This doesn't mean that there weren't battles. There were, but there wasn't a sense in the North, Midwest, and West Coast that business was attempting to eliminate organized labor altogether. In the South and Southwest, however, it was different. With a deeply hostile attitude towards labor, Though even with the hostility, there was still an active union movement. As a result, there was a sense among many leaders that unions were here to stay. One indication of complacency was failure of unions to dedicate significant resources to members' education and new organizing. For many unions, organizing became an afterthought, and it wasn't considered the cutting edge of trade unionism. Instead, the union settled in what's known as industrial jurisprudence, grievances and arbitration, and at best used collective bargaining negotiations as a means to secure jurisdiction over new facilities when they opened. Growth of new sectors with which traditional labor was unfamiliar. This actually has a double meaning, the growth of new demographic groups and the growth of new sectors of the economy. With regard to demographic groups, from the 1960s to the 1970s, the biggest single change in the workforce was the increase in the number of women employees. As the women's movement and changes in the economy converged, women increasingly worked outside of the house. Some unions welcomed women, and as a result, there were increases in women in staff and leadership, but the unions weren't ahead of the curve. 
there were other demographic changes. People of color, as a result of their respective freedom and justice movements, were entering sectors of the economy from which many had been excluded, such as the public sector. In that regard, they were looking for support from the unions, but it was inconsistent. One of the biggest challenges was the desegregation of workplaces, a challenge that many union leaders avoided. New forms of communications were developed, and while unions were active in television, radio, and film, as the technologies changed, unions didn't respond quickly. In addition, the U.S. economy witnessed the entrance of what came to be known as transplants. These are industries such as foreign autos that, while unionized in other parts of the world, fought unionization of efforts in the United States tooth and toenail. The challenge of technology and changes in the production process. Accompanying a new technology and new production processes were aggressive anti-union employers. Open pit mining in the West, for instance, is largely non-union, and the United Mine Workers, along with other unions, has failed to develop a successful organizing strategy. The construction industry, non-union employers, have moved away from hiring single-skilled workers like carpenters and iron workers and have shifted in the direction of multitasking with workers possessing multiple skills. Geographical shifts, both internal and external to the United States, beginning in the 1920s, industry started to move from the Northeast and the Midwest into the South in search of cheaper non-union labor. With each move, the new environments challenged organized labor. The South and Southwest were dominated by political elites that used intense and often vicious repression to keep out unions. The political elites and the employers also regularly linked racism and anti-unionism, applying to the fears and insecurities of white workers, presenting the union as a threat to white domination of these regions. Yes, unions are good for their members, but they hurt the rest of us. An interesting poll taken in the late 1990s revealed two noteworthy points. First, the majority or near majority of non-union workers wanted to be in a union or a union-like association. The second somewhat paradoxical point discussed at the time of the original poll in the 1990s within the AFL-CIO was the perception discussed by the pollsters that unions were good for their members, but not everyone else. Something noticeable happened to unions beginning in the late 1940s and continuing through the early 1950s. They slowly began to distance themselves from social justice issues, or to put it in another way, from being a cause. Unions in the CIO were viewed as potential supporters of other social and economic justice struggles. A case in point was the relationship built between the CIO and the United Front of Black American Organizations called the National Negro Congress during the late 1930s. The broader identification with trade unionism played itself out in various ways, including widespread refusal to cross picket lines. This was central to the culture in many parts of the country. You just didn't cross them. It is important to appreciate that this wasn't purely ideological. The reality is that as labor unions gained in strength and numbers, they affected society at large. The living standards of most workers 
began to climb prior to World War II and skyrocketed after the war. While there were, of course, larger economic factors that affected this like the United States' dominance in the capitalist world, one fact that's often ignored is that the division of domestic wealth would have been nowhere near what it was had it not been for organized workers. Unions had influenced the development prior to this period, such as the establishment of the 40-hour workweek. In fact, the major changes that unfolded during the New Deal era were brought about through pressure from a very vital union movement. Two such changes included the Fair Labor Standards Act and Social Security. The union movement of the 1930s and 1940s not only pushed for reforms that benefited their own members, but also for larger societal initiatives. After the Cold War purges of unions in the late 1940s, the atmosphere slowly began to change as more anti-communist demagogue insisted that a labor movement that talked about class, struggle of the poor, and middle class gained middle class against the wealthy was somehow subversive. It became worse as anti-communists suggested that those advocating desegregation and any degree of race mixing were also subversive. Organized labor felt less like a social movement and more like a trade association. Is a union a club? The contrast between the unionism of the 1930s and 40s and what existed in the 1960s through the 1980s could not have been starker. Certain unions permitted the exclusion of workers of color and women from their ranks, and during a time when social movements were addressing a myriad issues including civil rights, foreign policy, and women's rights, the union movement closed ranks and acted as if these were not important issues. As a result, other movements, organizations, and in some cases, lawyers began to fill roles that unions might have played at an earlier point in history. The emergence of wrongful termination litigation in the late 1970s is one example of this. By the 1980s, the political right led by President Reagan had successfully painted a labor union as a special interest. Regardless of the hypocrisy of Reagan's attacks, given that the corporate forces that he represented were very special and self-interested. The label of special interest group was branded on the forehead of many a labor leader and the front door of many a union office. Alternatives to special interests. The union movement's response to charges of being a special interest were largely defensive and truthfully ineffective. They ranged from a simple denial, no we aren't, to efforts at good relations to charity. What too many union leaders failed to understand is that the special interest label didn't mean that the unions failed to care about anyone else in the narrow sense of, of the term, but rather that the union had ceased speaking for anyone other than their members, and in some cases, only those in very specific industries. There have always been unions and union-initiated programs that have sought to break out of the old molds. Considering these noteworthy examples, West Coast dock workers fight apartheid. The International Longshore and Warehouse Union, ILWU, a.k.a. the West Coast Dock Workers Union, was an early opponent of the apartheid system in South Africa, introduced in 1948. Stanford, Connecticut 
organizing project, the National AFL-CIO began a series of initiatives in the late 1990s called Geographic Organizing Projects that aimed to organize multiple workplaces industries in the same locale, what made the Stanford project unique was the effort to turn worker organizing into both an alliance with community-based organizations as well as an effort toward economic development for the working class community of that area. Jobs with Justice formed in the late 1980s largely as an effort to widen support for labor unions. The unique feature of JWJ was that it included unions and community-based organizations. They were involved in the anti-World Trade Organization demonstration that took place in Seattle in 1999, and from there became more involved in global workers' rights issues. Madison, Wisconsin, 2011 an intriguing example of unions being viewed as anything but a special interest can be found in the Madison demonstration against Republican Governor Scott Walker's draconian assault on working people. His attacks not only included tax giveaways to the wealthy, but cutbacks on benefits won by workers. In an attempt to deprive workers of their full right to collective bargaining, Evidently, Walker assumed that the unions would stand alone, but contrary to his expectations, there was a virtual uprising in Madison with an encampment along with demonstrations of tens of thousands of workers, students, and their allies. AFL-CIO alliances with the National Domestic Workers Alliance and the National Day Laborers Organization Network expanding the fight for economic justice these alliances are important because they involve the unions supporting workers that have either been excluded by the NLRA or have been otherwise marginalized. It's true that some unions have failed to organize new workers and have turned away potential allies. This must be acknowledged, but we must recognize that this reflects a certain practice of trade unionism that is itself a problem, if not the problem facing the union movement in this country. If unions are so great, why aren't more people around the world forming them? Well, it's been the case that union membership has declined globally. The situation becomes complicated when one looks closely at individual countries. One finds that when unions are understood as instruments for broader fight against injustice, they can grow by leaps and bounds. There are many examples of this beyond Tunisia. In the 1980s, for instance, the Congress of South Africa Trade Unions and the National Council of Trade Unions in South Africa both grew significantly as they fought against apartheid. During the 1990s, the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions became a leading force in the struggle for democracy in South Korea. In Egypt, the official union movement had been in the hands of President Mubarak, but when independent trade unions broke from the so-called official movement and began organizing with non-governmental organizations, they became a significant force in bringing down the authoritarian Mubarak regime in 2011. They have remained active ever since. Labor unions played a significant role following World War II, especially in the global north, the United States, Canada, Western Europe, and Japan, so much so that they assumed they'd have a permanent place in the global stage. 
but it was also the case that in the global south, the so-called third world unions were often quite active in national liberation and independent struggles. Shifts in the global economy also created political shifts that played an important role in the future of unions. Beginning in the 1970s, overtly authoritarian regime in the non-Soviet world steadily became an embarrassment for the elites in the capitalist world. Let's take Colombia for a moment as an interesting case in the point. During the decades-long civil war, which has involved the government against leftist guerrillas, right-wing death squads against pro-democracy forces, narco-terrorists against various opponents, and so on. There has largely been a formal democracy in place between 2000 and 2010. However, Colombia accounted for 63.12% of the murders of trade unionists that have taken place globally. The International Trade Union Confederation noted that between January 1, 1986 and April 30, 2010, there were 10,887 recorded acts of violence against trade unionists, including 2,382 murders in Colombia alone. Despite this level of violence, Colombia continues to possess a trade union movement, yet it is obvious that the repression inhibits its growth. There are examples of similar such repressions in other countries that are nominally democratic, such as Mexico or the Philippines, but on a different scale than what is experienced in Colombia. Other factors include repression alone doesn't explain the challenge is facing the global union movement. Again, as we've experienced in this country, the restructuring of the economy has presented challenges regarding the purpose, structure, and functioning of unions. We're talking about Economic blackmail, the same sort of economic blackmail that workers in the United States regularly experience when there's a threat of a facility moving or investment being redirected is experienced on a global scale. But it is not just about the threats. It's about the changing nature of work. The reliance on temporary labor has become such a striking phenomenon. It's led to the development of a new word that defines much of the 21st century workforce. Precariat, as in precarious proletariat. One example of the rise of this workforce can be found in the practices of Coca-Cola, which uses large-scale workforces, casualization that is, contracting or making temporary positions that were once permanent in order to circumvent unionization. In some factories, Coca-Cola employs approximately 80% of its workers on a temporary contract. Coca-Cola's practices are are far from rare. The global move by corporations to limit the size of their core workforce and to rely on part-time temporary and contract workers, the so-called contingent workforce, has created immense challenges for all unions. As such, any decline in unionization isn't conclusive without taking into account what's happening in the workforce and our industry. Responses Responses to the various challenges ultimately, consciously or otherwise, point to the need for a reformed labor movement. Among the most interesting development in that regard has been the rising importance and role of women in a transformed labor union movement. Unionism for women has become a means not only to improve their condition at work, but also to liberate them from gender oppression. 
A similar phenomenon outside the formal union movement has been evidenced in Mexico where, along the U.S. border, since the 1960s, organizations of women workers have taken up various issues including health and safety and moving on to address broader matters. These organizations had to operate outside of the framework of established unions in part because much of the formal union movement in Mexico has been both historically tied to the government and hasn't been sympathetic to the concerns of women. Other attempts to address the impact of the global economic reorganization include changes within the formal union movement. The New Zealand Council of Trade Unions, a major federation in New Zealand, created a form of organization referred to as TOGETHER. The TOGETHER project closely resembles associate memberships, which were initiated by unions in the United States in the 1980s and offered a form of membership to those not already in a bargaining unit. In somewhat different category, but nevertheless also worth noting, has been the increased importance of alliances building between unions and other social movements in the fight for common objectives. In short, unions around the world are facing similar challenges. Let's face it, in a globalized world, unions are powerless. Although many people act as if shifting sites of productions, for example plant closings, are something new, that's far from true. Throughout the capital world, such occurrences are historically typical. In the United States, for instance, we can look to the shift of the textile and garment industry from northeast to south. By the mid to late 1970s, dramatic changes were unfolding in the global economy. In response to economic stagnation, new policies were instituted to spark economic growth, albeit at the expense of working people, combined with the development in technology. The world of work evolved dramatically and included the movement of production sites, downsizing, and in some cases the outright closing of facilities. The employer class could point to plant closings and say that unless workers were prepared to take concessions or unless workers refused to organize or join a union, the employer would shut down the facility and move it elsewhere, like to Ciudad Jerez, Mexico. Whether the company would or would not do this was inconsequential. The question was whether the workers and the neighboring communities believed that it might happen. Shifting productions through, for example, offshoring was originally situated within manufacturing, but that changed in the 1990s as a result of the electronic revolution. We started to see the offshoring of white-collar jobs, which was a jolt for most workers. These dramatic changes sent shockwaves throughout the union movement and continues reverberate. In fact, the union movement hasn't developed a clear and consistent response to these changes. However, there are emerging trends worth examining. The issue of power. Changes in production of the world of work are motivated by an assortment of concerns. For instance, new technology can increase productivity through output, but it'd be wrong to assume that it's developed for that reason alone. Changes in production are often inspired by efforts on the part of the employer class to weaken the relative power of workers. That power may derive from their knowledge of the production process or that which they exert through force of sheer numbers. In either case, power is at stake. When the production process evolves, irrespective of the rhetoric used at the time, well, one can argue that this 
was all part of a process of improving work, what it did, in effect, was to strengthen the hand of the employer and obtained information and knowledge from workers with almost nothing in return. Point here is that the global economic changes we've witnessed over the last 40 years aren't the natural evolution of economy, but are the results of political decisions by governmental bodies and the introduction of technologies that strive to cut costs at the expense of workers. Experiments, Resistance, and Challenges The union movement must think very differently about the strategies that it pursues and not, as it were, fighting the last war. New conditions necessitate new strategies and forms of organizations, not to mention new tactics. Also, in response to the globalization of business, many unions have created international framework agreements that are established among international alliances of unions in the same economic sector called global union federations and specific transnational corporations. Theoretically, IFAs permit unions to freely operate and conduct bargaining. These aren't, however, global collective bargaining agreements, and as such, their success ultimately depends on three factors. The relative strength of the unions that compose the global union federations, their respective abilities to operate in their homelands, and the level of pressure on the transnational corporations to comply. Unions are increasingly collaborating across borders. While there is a historical precedent for this, today's collaborations has been driven less by ideology and more by the practical realities of the global economic shift. A wealthy businessman once told me with a complete absence of emotion that when workers in plants that he owns seek to organize, he simply shuts down the plant. He didn't seem to feel that modus operandi was callous or insulting, not to mention illegal, but rather a simple statement of fact. That he could shut down his plants without remorse speaks volumes to the extent of the labor laws of the United States, the weakening of unions, the development in the global economy, and the looking out for number one philosophy, so fundamental to neoliberalism. Unions domestically and globally need to convince a broader slice of the population that the cause of economic justice is their cause, not just the cause of those who belong to unions. Thank you, listeners. I appreciate the time it takes to listen to these. Please share this podcast with your friends, family, and anyone that you know that's in a union or is interested in becoming a member of a union. We can be reached at www.laborknowyourrights.com, all one word. Also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can also reach us at laborknowyourrights at gmail.com. Any suggestions on future episodes, questions, ideas, or just you want to say hi or thank you, feel free to contact us there. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. <music>